This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Florence Mapman, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. I'm sitting with Andrew Bernard, our most recent past president, and uh, thank you for sitting with me and sharing your thoughts on the meeting this week. How's it been going? It's been another fantastic East meeting, Carrie. Thanks for the invitation. If you wouldn't mind uh, giving me some highlights of your favorite moments of the week and, uh, and kind of for our audience who couldn't be here, kind of highlight uh, what you discussed with your presidential address, which was just so incredibly powerful. It's hard to, boy, it's hard to find the, the best parts of an East meeting because it is so action-packed with so much cool stuff uh, from beginning to end. And I think what's special about the East meeting is that every year it's a little bit different and there's a little bit of new programming. We try to keep the old favorites, if you will, of the meeting, and then we try to add in some stuff that that is new and creative. So, of course, the leadership workshop and the fellows workshop had record attendance this year that's on the opening day on Tuesday while everybody on the injury control violence prevention committee are out doing the outreach event it's kind of a, a pre-meeting run-up and then the Wednesday morning short courses I thought were a great idea I give credit to Matt Martin for adding special programming in the meeting that you don't have to pay for so these short courses on research and injury prevention and quality that people could take advantage of without an extra cost or could use that Wednesday morning to travel. And then of course, lots of great science all the way through the meeting, the opportunity to deliver the presidential address and the opportunity to talk about equity uh, combined with the plenary the following day also on equity and diversity and inclusion to me was the the most powerful part of the meeting the the equity plenary was fantastic and then um, continuing into the rest of thursday afternoon with the app workshop and uh, the orion's essays and then on into friday now with a, a great frame lecture from dr ochoa talking about how we as uh, disruptive thinkers can be more valuable to society and to our patients and then this afternoon we'll have something that'll be maybe not quite like dodgeball but next best thing uh, we'll have the tailgate it's just wall-to-wall -wall, great friends great programming great science I'm excited about the whole thing it's hard to believe it's been a year since I sat with you and asked you what you had in mind for the upcoming year and what your thoughts were and heading into your presidency. Now that your presidency has concluded, how do you reflect back on the past year and, uh, and the growth that East has uh, experienced? Now, being the East president is very special. You get to preside over uh, board meetings and, um, and committee meetings all year long between the board meetings where ideas just gush ideas gush out of all these creative people who are members of the organization and and committee chairs that the challenge is to 
figure out which ones we can actually take advantage of, which ones align best with the mission of the organization, which ones we can afford, which ones are most relevant to the membership. Idea generation is, uh, is a, a trait that the members of this organization are strong in. So I'd, I'd say the, the most exciting part about the whole year has been to have the opportunity to preside over these discussions, all these conversations where we talk about exciting ideas and decide which direction we're going to take the organization in. It has been really fun for me to, to launch the equity task force and, and to get the survey, the equity survey up and going and to preside over that and be part of that. But uh, there is uh, so much that comes out of the, uh, the membership and the committees in terms of year-round activities, not just at the meeting, but all year long. The trauma casts are a great example of the educational programming all year. So I can't believe it's over either. I can't, I'm trying to think of where that year went, but uh, it's been quite a joy and quite a privilege. Well, Andrew, we've certainly enjoyed having you as our president. Thank you for all of the many, many hours that you have put into the program, and he certainly is, is better for having you lead us. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm sitting here with John Cuckleman, one of our resident presentations from the Alexander Paper presentation. John, thank you so much. Could you please introduce yourself? Tell us where you're from. Uh, yeah, John Cuckleman, like you mentioned, I am a, in my fifth of six years uh, at Madigan Army Medical Center for uh, general surgery. Can you tell us a bit, what is this Alexander Paper Competition? It's, it's one of the inaugural uh, kickoffs to the East uh, Conference every year. It's our first set of papers that uh, usually has the highest uh, draw on attendance and tends to be uh, some of the best research that we see this week. Yeah, so uh, the way I understand it, uh, the actual session is named after Raymond Alexander, who is one of the founding members of East. Uh, and to be in the competition, you have to be a resident and you have to have uh, completed some sort of scientific paper that is related to acute care, general surgery, or trauma surgery. Um, and uh, it's, like you mentioned, it's, it's 10 to 12 of the best papers that were uh, submitted uh, and scored uh, by, by uh, the scoring committee, I, I suppose. And John's being a bit modest. He was the winner of the Alexander Paper Competition last year and then came back again this year to present again. Tell us a bit about your research. Yeah, uh, so this year's uh, paper was uh, focused around ways that we can mitigate reperfusion injury uh, in patients that have a Roboa catheter placed. So for those who don't know, a, a Roboa catheter uh, um, is a adjunct to help hemorrhage control uh, for patients who have non-compressible truncal hemorrhage. So bleeding in the abdomen, bleeding in the pelvis. We uh, we can place a Roboa balloon uh, above the celiac vessels and, and then control all that hemorrhage. The problem is, uh, particularly in, in patients who are, have the balloon placed an hour, two hours before they're gonna be able to get definitive care, is that every minute that balloon is up is a minute that everything distal to it is not getting perfused. Uh, so once the balloon comes down, all of that ischemia causes a massive reperfusion injury. Uh, and, and my research looks at uh, ways that we can use the balloon itself to mitigate that, that reperfusion injury and be able to use the Roboa in a prolonged field care or, or pre-hospital setting. 
And you had three arms of your study. Could you explain kind of which, uh, how did each arm function with the Roboa? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the standard way of doing the Roboa is placing it and leaving it up. Uh, so one group was randomized to that, where, uh, and this was all done in swine, uh, where we, we made a solid, fatal solid organ injury, uh, basically by avulsing the left lobe of the liver in these swine, uh, and then placing the Roboa, having it up for 60 minutes. Uh, and that was one group within itself. The way that we mitigate uh, the reperfusion injury is in the two experimental arms. So both being an intermittent Roboa where the balloon either is up or completely down. Uh, there were two experimental groups, one being an up and down regimen based on time. So 10 minutes up on the balloon, three minutes down on the balloon and a pressure based. So up in the balloon initially to try to get some sort of clot formation and, and hemostasis and then down on the balloon until uh, the, the animal's mean arterial blood pressure went below 35, at which point we inflated the balloon for 10 minutes and then repeated that cycle as needed. And how did you come up with these uh, arms for timing? I like the concept, but why 10 minutes and three, why not five and one or 20 and two? Yeah. So the development phase of these Roboa studies, uh, and we've done a, f a few of them now, was uh, very long and arduous. So the numbers that we came up to, came up with, are based on the results that we saw during our development phase. Much longer than 10 minutes, uh, the animals were uh, too hemodynamically unstable in when the balloon came down. Uh, much longer or much shorter than three minutes for the balloon being down, we weren't able to tell where they where they leveled out. So when you take the balloon down, they're going to be hemodynamically uh, unstable just from the balloon coming down, just from the the, the new introduction of, of blood flow and the and the and the vessel changes that that occur because of that. So if we wait out to three minutes, we can we can see where they stabilize, if they have a good clot formed, if if their body's able to take the balloon being down. And were you doing these with the abdomens open so you could actually watch the bleeding at that liver edge? No, no. So we try to, as best we can, simulate what it would be like in a, in a patient with a massive liver injury. So after the injury was done, we, we placed the avulsed piece back in situ just as it would be, uh, or presum presumably would be, in, in a trauma patient. Uh, and then we rapidly closed the abdomen so that that is a confined space again. So you can allow for some of the tamponade effect to occur as well. Exactly. So tell me about your results. What did you find? Well, uh, it was pretty interesting. This is, you know, why we do science. It's, it's always fun to find out what you, you actually come up with. Uh, we were able to see that the, that in terms of survival, the time-based group actually did better. All of those animals lived out to our 120 minute time point, um, uh, which, which was excellent. We would expect, we would have expected to see the same thing with our pressure based, but actually two of those animals expired early, uh, during the, the, um, during the actual experimental time period. That being said, in terms of reperfusion injury, our pressure-based animals actually had much more physiologic uh, parameters in terms of their pH, their lactic acidosis, how they uh, responded to the balloon uh, uh, itself in terms of cardiac output and mean arterial pressure. So uh, sort of a mixed bag, 
the way that we are are presenting those those findings or concluding is that in terms of, of survivability, we found that our time-based was a little more reliable, but if you if you survived the pressure-based, you actually did better physiologically. And it sounds like ultimately simply inflating the balloon and just leaving it up until definitive care did the worst. Yes, absolutely. So those animals all died uh, very, pretty rapidly after the balloon was deflated. The, the, the repro- the, and interestingly, when you look at their uh, their blood loss, uh, it was fairly low, but uh, they they died rapidly um, from their reperfusion injury, not from bleeding out. And just for uh, some clarity, how many animals did you have in each arm of your study? There were five in each arm, okay. so a total of 20 pigs. Lovely. Thank you so much for sitting with me. Have a good day. Yeah, thank you. I'm here with uh, Mira, one of my friends from Fellowship, who has launched her very first multi-center trial. Mira, go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, good morning. I'm Mira Ganame. I'm currently an assistant professor of trauma at uh, Shock Trauma in Baltimore, Maryland. Thanks for having me, Carrie. So you started at Shock Trauma. You're a, a junior faculty member, and you decided to take on a project that's a multi-center trial, right? Why not just do it at your own institution? Like, what inspired you to kind of take on something this large? Oh, I did do it, actually, as a fellow. So when I was a fellow at Chalk Trauma, I did a retrospective study looking at, because of my interest in traumatic brain injury, looking at the effects of long bone fracture fixation on traumatic brain injury patients. Unfortunately, the study was, we didn't have enough numbers. Um, There's a lot of missing data um, before the lovely electronic medical records that we have now. And while we didn't get any statistically significant uh, findings, we did find a trend of worsening um, outcomes in mild to moderate TBI patients who got an IM nail for femur fixation. So it kind of stuck with me. I was very interested in it. Uh, even after I left Chakram, I tried to start it up at another place, but did not work out. So now that I'm back, it was the first thing that I wanted to do. And I'm actually very excited that I got a chance to do it in a multi-center trial fashion so that we can have enough numbers um, to study more about one of the most common injuries that coexist, the TBI and the long bone fracture, and how maybe we can improve outcomes. So that's not something I had considered until I reviewed your um, proposal. Your your study essentially is trying to sort out, is there a difference in outcome in traumatically brain-injured patients when they also have a concomitant femur fracture on how the femur fracture actually gets fixed? Is that correct? Yes. So traumatic brain injury is one of the most common injuries we see in trauma. Incidentally, also associated long bone fractures. And while we've done a lot of research to try to improve outcomes in TBI, I don't think we have made as big of a difference as we would like to. And I decided to pick a a specific area in TBI to look at, which is TBI and long bone fractures, uh, because they coexist very frequently and see if how we manage these patients with the fractures influences their outcomes. Because you'll see examples, and I saw these examples when I was a fellow, younger patients, moderate TBI, femur fracture in the intensive care units, go get their IM nail and come back and their GCS is just not the same. And it's not the same for a few days. And we always talk about the idea of uh, fat emboli, their influence in the lung, things like that. We, we know fat emboli exist, also influence um, uh, 
the brain and could potentially affect cognitive outcome. So we're going to look at that and look at GCS prior to getting the femur or tibia fixed, GCS immediately after within the first 24 to 48 hours in the postoperative period, and then GCS and something called the Rancher's Lewis Amico score, which is a standardized cognitive tool that we utilize uh, to evaluate the um, traumatic brain injury patients and see if how we do this affect outcomes and should we be rethinking what we do. Another interesting thing that I'm hoping to look at too, there is no universal um, consensus as to the timing of the fracture fixation. Some people advocate damage control and just doing an X-fix and letting the patients get over their TBI. And some people are more aggressive about doing IM nail and ORIF. And then within the IM nail versus ORIF, uh, argument, uh, IM nail is better, it's quicker, but you have the problem of fat emboli and ORIF is more invasive, there's more blood loss, there's a higher risk of hypotension, hypoxia in the OR that could also worsen your TBI. And so there are a lot of unanswered questions uh, within the topic itself and I find it very interesting. So I'm hoping to, to learn more and maybe help take care of our patients better. That was a fantastic summary. Uh, my hospital actually is going to be joining your multi-center trial. I think it's a really, really interesting topic, and thank you for picking it up. If uh, you're listening and you're interested in joining one of the EAST multi-center trials, you can find it online uh, at east.org, uh, and there's a, a list of trials that are opening up for 2019, ones that are still open for 2018, and there's still a few left over from 2017. One of the beautiful things about it is that the more institutions we have that join, the more patients we have, and the better granular data that we can get to help kind of answer some of these questions. Mira, thank you so much for sitting with me. Thank you, Carrie. I am here with Patrick, who might be the youngest person I've ever interviewed for a trauma cast. He is a fourth-year medical student who just did a really cool paper and presented, and I wanted to give him the opportunity to share his experience. Patrick, thank you so much. If you could introduce yourself and tell us about your paper. Sure. So um, my name is Patrick Isola. I'm a fourth-year medical student from Creighton University's Phoenix Regional Campus, uh, and that's where I'm coming from today. Um, I uh, am originally from Seattle, Washington. So yeah, our paper, uh, uh, it was a Google Street View assessment of environmental safety features uh, looking at a pedestrian's risk of mortality. Um, we investigated accident sites to, to, to look at these safety features and see how they would impact uh, a patient's survivability in a, a collision. And what were the safety features that you were looking for? Uh, we started with a, a huge list. There's tons of different safety features engineered out there. However, we reduced our, our list down through looking at literature, and the Governor's Highway Safety Association conceptualized targets into three um, categories, uh, increasing separation of pedestrians from automobiles, increasing visibility or awareness of pedestrians, and traffic calming features, which reduced uh, automobile speed at sites of interaction with, with pedestrians. So from there, we tried to look at what fe features may be predominant enough in Phoenix to actually get meaningful results from. And so we collectively decided on the six safety features we investigated, and those were sidewalks, pedestrian refuge islands, countdown timers, and traffic signals. And the latter two, a lot of people always ask, how do those increase separation? And they increase separation through space time. Pedestrians and automobiles won't be occupying the same space at the same time. And so that was the idea behind those four features. The additional two were high visibility crosswalks, which are readily prevalent in most cities and very prevalent in Phoenix. And then the, the final one was lane reductions. Lane reductions was the hardest to come up with a, an actual definition of a safety feature 
because lane reductions occur in many different modalities, whether they're absolute reductions of lanes, taking out a number of lane, or implementation of bike paths or other um, road congestion features to reduce speed. So we determined using lanes greater than six and lanes less than six because that kind of defines roads that are more congested and more chaotic. They have more cars on them and can be more dangerous. And so that's kind of how we came up with that six safety feature. So just so that listeners are clear, then what Patrick and his group had to do is sit with every single patient that came in in their study and go through a 360 Google Street View of the accident site itself, which was incredibly labor-intensive, but a very cool kind of way of looking at um, secondary injury uh, prevention through pedestrians struck by automobiles. So Patrick, tell us, uh, what did you find? Are any of these features that you evaluated um, significant for improving uh, mortality rates? So the results of this feature um, showed that only one safety feature actually had significance on a univariate analysis, and that was the lanes greater than or less than six, those road calming features that determine how many vehicles a pedestrian interacts with. Um, all other safety features were found to have no impact on mortality. However, when we combined them into a safety score, which was uh, a tabulation and giving equal weight to each feature, a zero through six score, we're able to find significant variance in those that survived versus those that died. So in essential, it's a little bit of help from each one of those safety features all combined together will actually decrease your risk of mortality. Is that a way of thinking of it? Correct, that's exactly what we are going for, is the collection of different types of safety features, whether synergistically or additively, unfortunately we, we haven't teased out that relationship, um, create significance in mortality. Well, I think it's a cool study, and, and one comment I had made is that his uh, data came from the trauma registry, so they evaluated everybody who actually made it to the hospital alive, and then looked at their risk of mortality after arrival, and I think uh, the future of this study really could be to include all the patients who died on scene, and you may find some more uh, significance, which could really impact uh, city planning in the future. Exactly. That, that was a wonderful thing to add, and I look forward to, to pursuing it in the future. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Um, I am here with uh, Paula Ferrara. Anybody who has ever been at an EAST meeting certainly uh, knows Paula. She's very active and involved. Paula, thank you for sitting with me. Thank you so much for having me. <clears throat> so my name is Paula Ferrara. I'm a professor of surgery at VCU. And um, at VCU, I direct this TQ and the fellowship. And at EAST, I have had several roles in different committees. This is a um, dear um, organization that I think um, is full of energy and ready to make uh, some changes to support young surgeons. And so you're just coming off as the mentoring committee chair. Uh, what was that like to chair a committee and then uh, what did your uh, committee do while you were uh, in charge? I, um, that was wonderful to be, have the opportunity to chair a committee, but I think that the fact that it was the mentoring committee was full circle. I was in the first um, mentoring uh, pair, so Vince Gracias started this mentoring um, initiative before it was a committee. And I was the first, uh, one of the first mentees 10 years ago with um, uh, Dr. Nagy, who's one of the, I think the first woman uh, president of East. Um, she changed my life, she's an amazing person. Um, but um, I also think that this is what East is all about. So the a mentoring program, uh, we have paired uh, in the last few years, 151 pairs. We're the largest mentoring program that exists for young surgeons. This year we paired 28 people. 
the I think the legacy of the mentoring committee was trying to make, even though it's a huge task to do um, uh, the pairing and make sure that we have this opportunity and, and running it, I wanted to be something more than just that. So we started collaborating with other committees. We started collaborating with the Association of Women Surgeons and we did a tweet chat and we did a podcast and that we started collaborating with the East for All new task force in um, talking about uh, how gender makes a difference when you are um, in mentoring. We collaborated with the seniors committee. We got more mentors than ever. And we also did a podcast in graceful retirement because mentoring is not only for young surgeons. We need mentoring in young surgeons, mid-career, seniors. And then it's the autonomy that the, the mid-career people are kind of like left behind. So you have the junior people everybody wants to mentor, the senior people already made it. Mm-hmm. What happens to you when you're in mid-career? You drift around. Who's going to help you? Where do you go? What uh, Do you want to be a division chair? You don't want to div- be a division chair? Financially, changes completely, right? It's more, uh, the conversations are different. Your leadership development, the um, your personal development, um, how your family, like we mentioned before, like all the things that were at risk for burnout. So I think it's a very vulnerable um, situation to be in in mid career. So we created this uh, leader and coaching program for mid career. We made it um, more than not, not as broad as the as the mentoring uh, career uh, um, program. So we um, recruit three leaders, Dr. Uh, Michael Rotondo, Dr. Deborah Cools, and Dr. Len Jacobs. And we asked for applications. We got very competitive applicants, which meant that there was a need. And uh, three evolving leaders have um, been chosen uh, by the um, mentoring committee. And we did the process very transparent and um, as a, a grading process so to make sure that we have taken into consideration several issues. Uh, and But I really encourage whoever um, didn't get it this year to apply again, because this is an amazing opportunity and um, and all of the people that apply were competitive for it. And Dr. Davis Karupa, Cindy Talley, and Mayor Patel um, uh, have the opportunity to be the evolving leaders. They have already met with their um, coaches and uh, conversations are on their way. Um, and. As they, we had a phone call, they already they already said that their their discussions are so much different than the ones that they have as mentees when uh, when they were younger, and they also they feel a difference in how they're supported. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm here with Rachel Colcott, who just presented a really interesting uh, paper at the critical care section on Friday afternoon of the uh, conference. Rachel, if you would introduce yourself and let us know about your paper. Sure. My name is Rachel Calcutt. Um, I'm from the University of California, San Francisco, and our paper was showing a validation study of a predictive algorithm to help us translate all the complex data in the ICU into a simple visualization to try to earlier predict who's likely to need an unplanned intubation. So would this be, at least it looked like when I was watching on the screen, it's all the information we already collect, but then it's a computer model to help us start to predict when patients would need an intubation that may be unplanned. And then would there be a like a, another screen next to the patient, similar to how we have the vital screen or maybe the Vigilay or the flow track or the cheetah, like all these different monitors, this would be an additional monitor, is that correct? 
Well, it could function as an additional monitor, um, but it could also just be in the electronic medical record. Most people now are rounding with the electronic medical record, and it could be a screen that pops up there to tell you that your patient's at risk. And I think one of the things that's unique about it is, is that we can start to see some elevation of risk profile out to 48 hours before an unplanned intubation, and it really skyrockets. 12 hours before the intubation and then definitely even further at five hours. And I think most of us would be surprised that a patient we could say definitely was going to need an intubation 24 hours beforehand. The idea behind it is not necessarily to tell you you should prophylactically intubate your patient, but for you to realize that a patient's at risk. Not everyone who's at risk with these models will go on to require unplanned intubation, but there's something going on in the physiologic dynamics of the patient that would suggest that you may be able to make an intervention that could either avoid the intubation um, in a perfect world, or if they progress to the intubation, you could have prepared your patient in such a way to, to minimize the risk of an unplanned intubation. Sure, I should see huge application on this, uh, particularly with our rib fracture patients, because a lot of times we admit them to the ICU, and at least at our hospital we kind of call it rib watch. We just kind of stare at these patients, particularly the elderly patients with multiple fractures, and we just wait to see if they're going to need to be intubated. Of course, like you suggested, we do all the um, preventative measures for improved pulmonary function, but this could be a great place to use this to help predict which patients even need to even stay in the ICU. Do you think that's fair to say at this point? Absolutely. Some of the preliminary work done by our collaborators at the University of Virginia was specifically designed to look at um, intermediate care patients and trying to use some of these algorithms to predict who needed to go to the ICU because they had impending respiratory failure and who could stay in an intermediate monitored situation. So I think people like to believe that intensive care unit beds are an unlimited resource, and we tend to treat that like that in our healthcare system, but those are expensive resources. And so uh, definitely these types of tools are being developed to try to help us figure out better who we can triage to what scenario to really maximize outcome and minimize harm. Is this a tool that is available now? Like if I wanted to go back to my home hospital and, and buy this display or this monitor, can I do it or is it still in the preliminary phases? It's still in a preliminary phase. Um, the uh, group at the University of Virginia has done a lot of work to figure out a commercial application for this. Um, and it's definitely something that uh, in a fairly short period of time could potentially be in people's um, own ICUs, um, but it also uses data that everyone has available, so it doesn't require a lot of infrastructure in order to integrate it, which is an important piece of developing these solutions if we actually want to see them come to life. Great, Rachel. Thank you so much for your research and for taking time. Thank you so much. It's Friday morning. I'm sitting with Dane, who uh, presented a quick shot yesterday evening on tracheostomy timing. Dane, if you would introduce yourself and tell us about your paper. Sure. I'm Dane Scantling. I'm one of the chief residents at Hahnemann University Hospital, which is the teaching hospital of Drexel University. Uh, my paper was about the uh, use of tracheostomy in spinal cord injury patients. We had noticed several years ago, as I'm sure other centers have also noticed, that many of these cervical spinal cord injury patients uh, wound up needing tracheostomy, but we didn't really know how to identify who would actually need it. A lot of the research that's out there has focused on whether or not patients did undergo tracheostomy, but not necessarily whether they would have actually benefited from it. Uh, we know that using uh, tracheostomy as an outcome is not necessarily a great indicator, as there are a lot of reasons why somebody may or may not actually undergo the procedure. Uh, as a result of that, we elected to use seven days on the vent as our outcome, because we know that seven days of ventilator time is when you should get a tracheostomy, as it reduces your uh, ventilator time, your length of stay in the hospital, length of stay in the ICU, and the cost of your admission. 
Uh, some papers have also stated that there's a reduction in ventilator-associated pneumonia, but that's pretty controversial. So in order to get enough patients to do this, we used the Pennsylvania uh, State Trauma Database, and we wound up with about 605 patients with spinal cord injuries in the cervical region uh, who ever wound up needing any time on the ventilator. When we actually uh, looked at these patients, we came up with a scoring system that ranged from zero to three. And using that scoring system, which included the level of the injury, uh, the type of injury being anterior or a complete cord injury, uh, and an ISS of greater than or equal to 38, we were able to predict which patients would uh, need a ventilator for at least seven days and therefore could be predicted to need a tracheostomy. Uh, our score ranged from about 38% needing a tracheostomy based on the ventilator time to 98% needing a tracheostomy based on the ventilator time. Uh, overall, about 70% pe uh, of these patients need about seven days of ventilation if they ever go on the vent at all. So our score works to uh, discriminate these patients into a lower risk pool and a higher risk pool. And uh, we can anticipate that this will have some pretty good impact on outcomes in the future. So if I use your scoring system, let's say I take your paper, I go back to my home hospital, I love it. I could predict on day zero or day one which patients I'm going to end up tracking anyway within seven days and which ones I'm not going to end up tracking. And so maybe I could get my trach in sooner. Is, was that the concept? That is the concept. The idea is that when these patients hit the door of the trauma bay, you can pretty accurately predict uh, whether or not they're going to need seven days of ventilator time. And you can ideally perform an earlier tracheostomy and forego some of the complications associated with the long-term use of an endotracheal tube. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the interview. All right, I've had the opportunity to have a conversation uh, with Wu Du, who is one of the fourth-year uh, residents who presented his paper at uh, the recent East meeting. And uh, one of the lovely things, if any of you listened to Behind the Knife, Dr. Uh, du was one of our uh, podcasters uh, last year during his research year. So it's kind of nice to have a little bit of podcast crossover. So Wu, if you would uh, introduce yourself and tell us where you're from. Hi, Dr. Valdez. Thanks for that warm introduction. Very excited to be on, especially being a big fan of the TraumaCast. Um, so, just short introduction, um, grew up uh, in Everett, Washington, uh, flew out to the East Coast, to New York uh, at West Point for college, uh, then out to Boston for medical school, and now uh, back to the West Coast, uh, currently in my residency at Madigan. Well, wonderful, and thank you uh, for your service. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your paper and what you presented at the East Conference? Yeah, I'd be happy to. It was a really exciting project to be a part of. Um, so out in uh, Dr. Matt Martin's lab at Madigan, uh, one of the big goals we have is to figure out how to reduce death on the battlefield um, due to significant uh, injuries uh, that our soldiers face. Uh, one of these injuries uh, is uh, a complex called the dismounted complex blast injury pattern. And a key contributor to mor mortality in that uh, injury pattern is lethal pelvic fracture associated hemorrhage. And so we developed an animal model looking at pelvic fracture associated hemorrhage. And we attempted uh, different maneuvers to try to uh, survive the animals out to a golden hour quote uh, period that would be anticipated during transport. So uh, after the injury was created and the uh, animals were hemorrhaged down to a certain mean arterial pressure, blood pressure, uh, we would institute whatever intervention it was. And this was a randomized uh, study. So the interventions we tested included Reboa in zone one and zone three. Uh, it included a abdominal aortic junctional tourniquet, which 
Um, the results of that were presented at a double AST paper separately, uh, but you, uh, can also be seen in the manuscript. Um, additionally, we tested uh, the traditional standard of care uh, open packing. Uh, and finally, we looked at a novel technique called the minimally invasive balloon or preperitoneal balloon tamponade. Um, many general surgeons are familiar with the totally extraperitoneal uh, laparoscopic inguinal hernia repair, where you use a balloon dissector to dissect out the exact space that you would be packing for pelvic fracture hemorrhage. And so uh, inspired by that technique, we tried to use that technique as well in, uh, as a modality of hemorrhage control. Uh, yeah, I was yeah. going to ask you to touch on those details because I, I feel like I've been around the trauma world a, a bit. And when I was reading your abstract, I, I felt a little chagrined. I had no idea what properitoneal balloon tamponade is. Can you, can you give us some details as to what exactly you were doing? Yeah, I don't think it's actually crossed over beyond animal models uh, quite yet from what I've been able to glean from the literature. Um, but uh, essentially, when you do a preperitoneal dissection for a laparoscopic inguinal hernia repair, you're uh, cutting down just you know, just beneath the umbilicus, uh, just beyond the anterior rectus sheath, and you slide the dissector right behind that, uh, right behind the rectus to the point where you get below the arcuate line, and then you expand a balloon in that space, and as the balloon fills, you would fill the exact cavity that would be uh, the, the space of retius, essentially, uh, that, that pelvic space that would be filling with hemorrhage. And by expanding that, we are trying to create tamponade uh, in the same way that preperitoneal packing would attempt to create tamponade in that space. Do you put two balloons in? Is it one big balloon? Is it the same thing? It, it sounds like a really interesting kind of concept yeah. rather than open uh, packing. Yeah, great question. We actually use the same exact balloon that's currently on the market for the TEP hernia repairs. Um, we're currently in conversations to try to figure out if there is a better way to optimize the balloon for hemorrhage control because the balloon was certainly not designed to do so but it is a single balloon that you just inflate in that space, just as you would a TEP. And so the value of this is that many of the current generation of general surgeons graduating from residency and especially finding themselves in the military in an austere or deployed environment, they've all done TEPs before. And not many of, of them have great comfort in a true open preperitoneal pelvic packing. Uh, and so the TEPs may potentially be a way that they can draw upon their experience and expertise uh, in minimally invasive surgery to benefit the patient uh, downrange. And so you had you had five arms of your study, no intervention, this balloon intervention you and I were just speaking about, mm -hmm. uh, packing, Raboa is on one, Raboa is on three. What did you determine for uh, the best way to manage uh, pelvic hemorrhage? And, and just to be clear, you let your swine models bleed down to a map of 40, which is uh, not dead. You know, you're actually Correct. intervening as they are getting hypotensive to try to prevent the uh, the sequelae of actual hemorrhagic shock. Absolutely, and I will note that as after the map dropped to 40, we would initiate uh, a resuscitation protocol using Hextend, uh, which is not traditionally done in a civilian environment, but is still the standard of uh, the uh, TCCC Tactical Combat Casualty Care uh, guidelines, and that's what we drew um, upon for our. Uh, resuscitation protocol, given the prolonged field care scenario, uh, but we did not transfuse any blood. And so once the map dropped to 40, we initiated whatever arm of the, the uh, intervention was. The interventions were all pre-positioned, and so they were the balloon was inflated, or the packs were placed, and all those things were happening immediately once the map hit 40. Um, and then we survived the animals out to uh, 60 minutes. We saw that for uh, Roboa in zone 1 and zone 3, 
for the preparing a balloon. Um, all those animals survived out to a full 60 minutes. Uh, we saw that in the open packing arm, the survival at 60 minutes was 60%, and uh, the hemorrhage model was highly lethal. If there was no intervention, survival was a uh, mean of five minutes. They, they died very rapidly. And then is that to suggest then that I could just pick? I could do a peritoneal balloon, I could do a bow one or three, or were there differences within those arms as well? Yeah, great question. So as you might anticipate, um, Reboa has significant concerns regarding its ischemia reperfusion issues, and we did see that as well. Um, so as far as hemodynamics go, in zone one Reboa, for example, we saw the same superphysiologic spike in blood pressure that has been described um, very early on. Um, and that sort of physiologic response was mitigated by placing the Reboa in zone three. Uh, additionally, we saw that lactate elevation was greatest in the animals that, that got the Reboa intervention in zone one. But again, that was nullified essentially in zone three Reboa. Uh, and then the most striking feature was that once you deflated the balloon, so reverse the intervention at the 60 minute mark, the drop off in survival was, was rapid for, uh, for zone one Reboa. So survival fell to 33% uh, very quickly. Um, whereas a uh, preperitoneal balloon fell to maybe about 67%, still about the level of, of that which was seen for open packing. Um, and zone three actually was uh, very, very well tolerated in terms of its uh, uh, intervention takedown. All the animals 100% survived the takedown of the intervention. Very interesting. So you've yeah. done it in spring. Now, what, how far away are you from transitioning this to actual clinical practice, either uh, in hospitals or on the battlefield? Uh, I think it's hard to say that this this is ready for prime time. I think what we know is that um, these are uh, useful adjuncts that are currently available. The tech is deployable now, um, and I think in you know small controlled settings where the indications are met, uh, certainly with Reboa, we're seeing it being used, and I think that's fair. Um, I think that the difficult, challenging thing is going to be to make sure that the proper indication is there and the contraindications are not there before we uh, go cavalierly and deploying all these interventions. Well, I, I think you bring up good points and, and it's really, it's research like yours that's going to help us sort out when we should use it and how we should use it. And, and it's certainly as a fourth year uh, resident, I, I, I commend you for taking on a project like this. Uh, this is uh, much more than just a retrospective uh, data dive um, and good luck to you in, in your future studies. And thank you again for your service and thank you for joining us on the TraumaCast. Thank you so much. I have the great opportunity to have a conversation with Elliot Hout. This year, he is our 2019 President of EAST. Elliot, for our young listeners who have just joined the EAST uh, community or for someone who's just joined the TraumaCast, would you mind introducing yourself and tell us where you're from? Sure, absolutely. So first of all, I'm super excited to be on it today. Uh, so my name is Elliot Hout. I'm a trauma and acute care surgeon. I work at Johns Hopkins Hospital, uh, where I'm also the vice chair of quality and safety for the Department of Surgery. So what I'd like to start with, because um, anyone who's been in East for a while has gotten to know you because you're, you're just very friendly and gregacious and out there. But if we have a new listener or someone who's just joined East and they're going to hear from our president, I was hoping maybe you could take us back to when did you join East? And how did you become the president? What's your story been over the past uh, few years? First of all, it's a huge honor to be the president of East. Uh, I went to my first East meeting. I was a, you know, a trauma fellow, and I went to the East meeting, and I was hooked. 
Uh, I, I just felt like it was going to be my home. If it were up to me, I'd wear a Hawaiian shirt to work every day. Uh, so that's the first piece that brought me in. It's just a casual group. When you see me, please call me Elliot. It doesn't bother me at all. Introduce yourself to me. Uh, so the way I got involved with East was I had done my fellowship at University of Pennsylvania. And uh, my fellowship director, Pat Riley, was chairing a committee and, and emailed me and said, hey, Elliot, would you like to be on this committee? I'd like to get you involved. I think you'd be helpful for the East organization. And I told Pat, uh, sure, I don't know what you want me to do, but I'll do whatever you tell me. Um, and that was my first assignment to the program committee, you know, back in 2006. Uh, I was a really junior faculty and that's really how I got involved. Uh, I worked on the program committee. I worked on some guidelines. Uh, I got onto the publications committee. Uh, and I was working hard and, and doing what I thought were good things for East. Uh, and then I got asked to chair the guidelines committee. Uh, uh, I will always be partial to the guidelines committee. Uh, that group works super hard to put out probably the number one product East is well known for. And I was honored to do that for three years. Uh, and then after chairing that committee, then I got tapped to be uh, on the board. Uh, I worked on the social media committee when it wasn't a thing and we, we tried to get that going. Um, and then uh, executive committee secretary and, and here I am as the president. If you'd asked me 15 years ago, my first meeting, did I ever think I'd be president? The answer is absolutely not. What was it about that first meeting that made you hooked? Um, I think it was this great mix of high quality science. So I think you have to put science first. Um, I don't want to go to a meeting that has low quality science. So the first thing is good science that's coming out of the meeting. But also you could go talk to people and introduce yourself. And the, even the most senior people are willing to talk to me as a, a junior faculty member. Um, it, it feels a little different than many of the other meetings where it's, it's hard to break into the click. Um, even now at East, we have committee members who are residents and fellows and first year faculty on committees. It's so different than many of the other groups where you have to work your way up and you don't even get a chance to be on a committee until you're five or 10 years out uh, in practice. We're willing to take people, if you're willing to work for East, we will find a job for you to do. What advice would you give to new members of East on how to get involved and how to uh, tap into kind of the networking that you're referring to? So I think the first thing I do, and I kind of have a pat answer to this. A lot of people have asked me, I said, get involved, pick what you think you would be good at and do that thing. Every summer, there's a call for volunteers. Put your name in to be on a committee. Tell us what you want to do. This year, I put uh, 180 people on different committees at East. Those are all volunteers who are going to do really good work. So step one is volunteer step up. Uh, East runs tons of multi-institutional trials. You don't need to be on the committee. You want to pick a trial that you're interested in. Uh, if you're a resident, pick a faculty member to help you. If you're faculty, find a resident to help you. Put together your IRB, do the data, submit it. You're going to get to know a great group of researchers. You want to work on a guideline, you don't need to be on the guidelines committee. If you have an interest and you want to write a guideline, you want to co-author a guideline, you want to lead it, whatever you want to do, get in touch with the guidelines chair. If you can't find them, I'm happy to be the conduit. Get involved and help with a guideline. And these are all things you can do um, very early on in your career. We've had residents 
co-author guidelines. Tons of residents have co-authored these multi-institutional trials. That's kind of the way to really get involved. Go to the meeting, go talk to people. That's what EAST is all about. So you're 12 years deep into EAST. Now you're the president. You have 12 months to make your mark and have an impact. What are you envisioning uh, the direction that we're going to go over the next five to 10 years? And in the short term, what can you do in your presidency to make a difference? Well, it's a great question. And the answer is uh, EAST is an awesome organization. It is a spectacular group of people and we are strong and vibrant. So my first job is don't mess it up. So like, I don't want to be just riding the tide. I want to certainly move east in the right direction, but I also don't want to change so many things so dramatically that we shift from our goals. I mean, our goals should be focusing on high quality science, developing the careers of young trauma surgeons and teaching leadership, research, uh, education, community outreach, injury prevention. We should be doing all those things with a focus on the, the next generation. So I wanna keep that going. Um, in the spirit of collaboration, one of the charges I've given to each task force and each committee is to work with other groups to make your products better. So it's not gonna just be each little committee doing their own little work by themselves. It's gonna be, you'll see things more from combined efforts between two committees to put out great work. And I look forward to that. Uh, when we had the meeting with uh, Dave Morris, the chair of the online education committee, he let us know that was your charge. And a lot of it was each committee needs to get involved and work with online education and improve that because that really is our product. That's the best thing we bring to the public. We bring it for free is all of our education, like you referred to the practice management guidelines and as well as TraumaCast itself. Yeah. And I would say, I mean, literally the overall charge to all committees, that one specifically is each committee is going to work with that group to figure out what is coming out on Twitter. What is going to be a good East Minute? What should be a podcast, a career cast, a trauma cast? What should be an online webinar? What should be other things that we can do? East committees do this amazing amount of work, and I feel like it needs to be showcased to the world of everything East has to offer. And I don't want there to be any secrets. I don't want someone to go to the website and be like, oh my gosh, I didn't know East did this. I want us to Advertising isn't really the right word, but put out there the great work each committee is doing, and that's where you, this group is going to do, do a great service for EAST. Wonderful. Elliot, thank you so much for taking the time with me, and I look forward to the rest of the TraumaCast. Everybody, if you haven't uh, gone onto the EAST website, take a minute, click around, go to the online education, uh, the TraumaCast, the East Minute. East Minute is also found on the YouTube channel that you can subscribe to. If you ever need like a down and dirty, how do I manage this thing on a practice management guideline, the East Minute has done a great job of doing that. And, and Elliot, I really can't say how much we really support and appreciate uh, your encouragement for the online education. Thank you. Thanks very much. And thanks again for having me on today. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the EAST website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the EAST.